Hello and welcome to Mayo Clinic Talks, the opioid edition. I'm Tracy McRae and with me today is Dr. Casey Clements, an emergency physician and practice leader who works in the opioid stewardship program at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Hello, Dr. Clements. Hi, thanks for having me. Today, we're gonna take a look into the opioid crisis from the perspective of acute prescribing. Dr. Clements, first of all, what is an acute prescriber? Uh, So I think that there's a general class of physicians who generally are treating acute pain as opposed to long and ongoing pain. That would include not only emergency department physicians, uh, but surgeons and proceduralists who are doing painful procedures, as well as primary care providers who are treating patients uh, in their acute pain that come to the clinic. So if an acute prescriber has got is a different role in that in filling out those prescriptions, how do you as an acute provider or prescriber stop or discontinue the use of opioids? So uh, first of all, I think that at every single patient visit for a patient who's on opioids, be it acute or chronic, we should be trying to address how are we going to get off of these Mm -hmm. medications. Mm -hmm. Every piece of evidence would say staying on these forever is bad for you. And so at every point of healthcare contact, I think it's a very legitimate question to be asking the patient, What's your plan on getting off of these medications, or can I offer you tapering recommendations for how to get off them? Now, there are some cases in which we want to stop opioid medications abruptly and all of a sudden, and that's if you really have any evidence of misuse or abuse of those medications, if you have evidence or suspicion that opioids are being diverted for nefarious purposes, or if you think that they're an imminent uh, danger to the patient, such as a risk for accidental overdose with drug-drug interacting medications like benzodiazepines. Um, In that case, we should really stop opioid medications, and then handle the withdrawal symptoms uh, if necessary, preferably with non-opioid treatment. Is there ever an exception to that opioid discontinuation? Yeah, you don't want to stop an opioid all of a sudden in patients who are going to be placed at medical risk uh, for those withdrawal symptoms. So uh, people with significant cardiac disease, including uh, unstable angina um, or Uh, ongoing or common chest pain, you want to be very careful about stopping opioids all of a sudden. And also pregnant patients. The physiology in pregnancy changes and putting a pregnant patient into withdrawal can also put uh, the fetus at risk. And so we want to be careful in um, medically compromised populations that would be at risk for the symptoms of withdrawal. How do you write a prescription for acute pain? So if you come to the emergency department or to the clinic and you have a severe acute painful condition like a fracture of a bone or I had to do a procedure on you that's going to have some pain uh, or even surgeries, uh, evidence would say that the vast majority of those patients require three days or less of an opioid treatment. Um, And I think that that's a bit of a change in the medical culture and medical literature um, because I think we've thought, while they have this severe pain, this is going to be ongoing for some time, we need to provide them with longer-term medication. Really, that's the exception, and the rule should be a three-day supply, usually totaling 100 milligram of morphine equivalents or less as a complete prescription. So that's about 12 tablets of 5 milligram oxycodone if you're going to say that conversion. Um, Most patients, or almost all patients, won't require more than that, including for surgeries or acutely painful conditions. 
rarely do patients require more. And in that case, usually one week supply of seven days or 200 milligram morphine equivalents uh, is the indicated or recommended dose, at least by our group. Uh, and then they would need to follow up if they're still requiring further treatment at that time. Is it unusual or is it more common for a patient to get that 100 milligram, you know, a few days worth and then start to show a dependence that quickly? This is a great question, and I think that there's been a lot of fear around this, both from a patient side and a provider side. The patients are afraid that they're going to be in pain longer term, uh, and the providers are scared that we're going to make a lot of addicts by prescribing a few days of medication. We do have some pretty good evidence from big data that would say that uh, patients who have an acutely painful condition and get only a couple of days of medications are not at the highest risk for addiction potential. Um, and so uh, we would recommend that short course in a reevaluation than longer term prescribing. Certainly the risk of dependence or misuse needs to be weighed against the benefits of the treatment, which as we said in a previous episode, are really improving the function of the patient and being able to make their pain tolerable. What is the first sign or symptom, or how can you tell if someone is maybe having issues with dependency? I think this is a really important question as well. You know, we certainly have diagnostic criteria for opioid use disorder. Uh, you know, the uh, psychiatry manual or Bible of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the most current version, DSM-5, has 11 different criteria for opioid use disorder. And if at any point you meet two of those criteria within 12 months, you have the diagnosis of opioid use disorder. I think that that may be a little bit overcomplicated uh, at the risk of uh, offending some of my uh, addiction colleagues. <laughs> I think that if you have concerns that the patient is potentially misusing their medications or is developing a problem with these medications, that we need to have frank and honest conversations with our patients of, hey, I think that you might have a problem. Uh, can we talk about this? In general, how is that comment or that question received by patients? I mean, I'm sure they're not all the same, but do, do some patients say, I think you might be right? Or does everybody disagree? No, some patients do say you might be right, and mm -hmm. I, I think that we have con, uh, misconceptions about how that conversation will go. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, especially for people who've been on these medications for a long time, um, they're hurting for different reasons. And so we need to meet the patients where they are, and that invitation to a conversation is received well sometimes, and it should continue to be asked even if it's not received well the first, second, or third time, um, because eventually a patient is going to need some help and we need to make sure that we're there to help offer it. I know one of the things in past interviews that I've done, I've heard uh, people say if, a, if an opioid is prescribed, there should always be a second visit, not just here's your prescription, send you on your way. There always should be a second visit to see how we're doing there. But what we're talking about here is if they say yes, I have an issue or okay, I will go talk to a social worker you're not going to hold their hand and take them to the social worker, but how do you make sure that that handoff happens, that that patient, you should get them to come back and talk about, okay, how is the opioid use going? How do you get them to hand off to the next person to make sure they get that help they need and don't fall through the cracks? 
So just like any other addiction or drug that um, patients may have problems with, uh, opioids require a multidisciplinary approach. And I do think that we need to engage our addiction medicine colleagues and get people into treatment that's going to be longer term than just a visit or two. So to answer the first part of your question of does everybody who gets a prescription need a follow-up visit to see how they're doing? Um, you know, for anybody who's on long-term opioids, I absolutely think that follow-up is going to be the most important thing. For patients who have an acutely painful condition that requires a short-term treatment, I don't think that our medical infrastructure is capable of following up every one of those patients three days later. Um, uh, that doesn't exist in our country right now. And so the follow-up plan is important if they have continued pain, but I don't know that in acute prescribing that we can say you need to see somebody else if I'm giving you an opioid prescription. Um, certainly to get back to the second part of the question, when we're starting to talk about, okay, I think this patient has a problem. What do I do with this? Mm -hmm. um, social work was mentioned. Uh, I think that social work resources are key to this a lot of the time, and they can facilitate providing resources to patients to make sure that they're getting help that they need for uh, their addiction treatment. And referrals to addiction medicine are important. What don't we, the lay public, what don't we understand about opioids? I mean, it, it is occurring to me as I'm uh, going through the process of interviewing you find physicians for this podcast that um, the way that I feel about it is I'm afraid to even take one pill. I've never had an addiction problem. Um, when I have had to take them, I get really sick. Um, I just don't even want to have them in my house. <laughs> but Perhaps I'm being a little bit like it's a boogeyman kind of thing. I don't need to be that afraid. And then there's all the way the other side. People are like, yeah, pop them like candy. No big deal. What is it that you want the general public to understand about opioids as we move forward as a nation and this problem continues? So... Uh, I think a healthy dose of fear is probably mm -hmm. okay. There's no boogeyman. Okay. I don't think you have to worry about that. Uh, I do think that uh, what we don't understand, both as patients and in society in general, is the risks of these medications to a personal level. We understand the risks of, oh, these patients, some people get addicted. But in general, when we're in pain or when we think that these medications may be indicated for us as a patient, we don't see ourselves at, as at that risk for addiction. And I, I think that we need to have uh, more granular data and more frank discussions with here's your risk for developing misuse, dependence, abuse of these medications. Uh, and that's going to involve physicians and allied health and nursing staff having uh, discussions with patients for risks and benefits for what we would usually have considered a simple prescription. This is probably something that we can do in other medications as well that would benefit our patients, but I really think that in opioids, we're going to start to have to have that consent discussion even for a prescription, as if this were a procedure. Here's what we're trying to accomplish with this prescription, and here's the risks of the bad things that might happen as well to you, not just to society. And finally, I think part of what got us to this point is that people wanted to better manage pain. Um, erase pain. And now maybe we're stepping back a little bit and saying, instead of erasing your pain, we're just going to better manage your pain. Is that semantics or is that really what's happening in the emergency department or yeah. for you as an acute physician? 
I had this discussion just yesterday with one of my colleagues. Um, he said, you know, I remember when the Joint Commission came out with the additional vital sign of pain intensity mm -hmm. and, and the idea that uh, oligoanalgesia of we're under treating or not treating pain adequately was really a big push. And he said, and now we're going back this other direction and I feel really torn about what should we be doing. Uh, and so I think that that is a consideration. I don't think that it's just semantics. I think that we have had a push and our providers and prescribers feel that push to treat pain more and more and more aggressively. And some people in society have borne the cost of that, including the crisis that we're talking about today. I don't know that it's a single cause, but it contributes. What are the steps to identifying and referring a patient that may need treatment for addiction? We spoke a little bit about engaging social work to get resources and the like, and I think that addiction medicine has a really important place to play in this crisis. Now, that being said is they are a valuable resource in the community, and there's regional variations on access to addiction services. There's some places that have a lot of addiction specialists, and there's some places when they are extremely few and far between. However. Any primary care provider can refer people to addiction services, and I think that we should do that at the point where the patient is receptive to it. Um, we have to meet patients where they are, and I think that if the patient says, yes, I'm willing to get some help, that we need to engage addiction at that point. And the screening tools that are used for that, what are those? Yeah, so for patients who are on chronic opioids, um, there are some screening tools which would indicate risk of misuse, abuse, or dependence, like the opioid risk tool. Um, those are not validated for acute pain or acute prescribing. So while we don't have a tool to tell us who's going to be at risk for uh, addiction or misuse of these medications, we do have their comorbid conditions which are associated with uh, risk for abuse or misuse, and that includes addiction history to other substances, as well as uh, co-occurring psychiatric illnesses, which seem to place patients at risk because of their self-treatment of their uh, underlying mental health disorders. What about when you've seen a patient, you've had a patient present who is requesting an opioid, they say, oh, Dilaudid is the only thing that works for me, whatever the circumstance, um, but you're not sure that that is maybe the patient's best interest. What is it, first of all, that makes you, I would say if somebody says, I only want Dilaudid, <laughs> what do you do in that situation? Well, uh, and for many emergency providers, that is a trigger phrase that brings yeah. us back to unpleasant circumstances. Yeah. So, For me, uh, it would be, please don't give me that. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Um, that being said, uh, this is a very, very common scenario. It is. Yeah. Almost daily do we have patients that have an expectation uh, that opioids are what they need. Uh, and on, honestly, a lot of the time, it's not in their best interest. Well, because to go back to your first point uh, previous, that we don't want to have pain anymore. Yeah. Hmm. So, you know, William Mayo said that the needs of the patient are the only needs to be considered. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so if I go down in history for being famous for anything, <laughs> I want it to be that the hard parts of medicine, regardless of your specialty, are when the needs of the patient aren't the wants of the patient. Mm. And so this is one of those scenarios. Um, so first of all, it takes time. 
this is going to take more time to have a conversation with the patient that's desiring an opioid prescription who you don't want to give it to than to just write the prescription. And that's a major barrier to improving our prescribing practices nationally. Um, so when this happens, I know, okay, I'm in this for 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, and you have to go in and you have to talk to the patient. Now, I think that that conversation can go a couple of different ways. I think that the first part is you have to acknowledge that the patient is in pain and let them know that you're going to treat that pain with whatever modality you choose. Um, so you might say, uh, Tracy, uh, I really appreciate that you're in pain, and I'm going to do my absolute best to help you feel better. But I will say that these medications are dangerous, to the, uh, and we have a long history of understanding that they're dangerous, and I don't think it's in your best interest to use opioid medications. I think that it's important to be concrete about that up front and to also set that expectation as early as possible in the patient encounter. Now, once you've set that expectation, you can go on to having further conversations. Have you had problems with opioid use in the past? Do you think that you have a problem with these medications and require treatment for addiction? That's not every patient. That's the rare patient. Um, but very frequently, you might say, now, I know that nausea is a major part of your uh, pain here. We have some nausea medications that can make people feel much more comfortable. Can we do that with, uh, let's try that with a non-opioid medication, for example. And then you get buy-in and you can have a plan that will uh, provide pain control once you've set the expectation that you're not going to use opioids for this patient. Um, this is a nuanced approach, and I'm sure I'm not perfect at it, um, but I think that it's one of the things that we have to become facile with if we're going to move the needle on the opioid crisis is learning how to say no. How often does that happen in your regular shift? Every day. Really? Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and share it with a friend. Healthcare professionals looking to claim CME credit for this podcast can go to ce.mayo.edu slash opioid PC and register. That's ce.mayo.edu slash opioid PC. Thank you, Dr. Clements. Thank you for having me.